Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible class. We're glad you could join us and uh, watch this video. This is the last video Bible class for Wednesday night Bible class. We are uh, starting up classes for all ages again next Wednesday night. And so this will be the final video. As you notice, I'm not Lawrence Kelly. He's out of town this week and he left us young whippersnappers to take the study on by ourselves. So we're taking it in a completely different direction. <laughs> um, we decided, we've been, Jared and I and Chad Graber have been teaching the college class and we've been teaching on the book of First Peter and we're about halfway through the book. So Jared and I thought it might be a good idea to share with you some of the things we've really enjoyed about that study and some of the um, things that have struck us differently this time. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, Jared, what, have, what have, you, have you enjoyed being back together with the, the college class? Yes, yeah, that's been really good. So for a, a period of time, just like pretty much everybody else around the country right now, uh, I was without any kind of like Bible class. We back home, we finally got to start meeting as a congregation, but it was still, you know, with a lot of like regulations and things like that. And there were no classes. And so this like classroom interaction and hearing other people's thoughts uh, has been really encouraging and I think beneficial to all of us. And this, I don't know if it's just because I've missed it for so long, but I felt like this class specifically has, has challenged me maybe more than any other Bible class before. Maybe, and maybe that's just because like, we're teaching it and it's different when you... But I, I really do think it, it has... It, it's been a, a, just the motivation and the, and the extra push that I needed um, in a time that has otherwise been very difficult. So it's been really good. It's probably been such a good class because Chad's just a really good teacher. That too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we decided, we, Jared and I were talking about how we could best kind of bring you along and some of the things that we've been really enjoying d discussing and talking about. So we kind of figured out six questions that are going to lead us through the first three and a half chapters of First Peter. And uh, so we're just going to jump right into it with our first question. And our first question has to do with the audience that Peter wrote to and also the uh, the theme of the letter. So Jared's going to read First Peter one verses one through three, and then I'll read um, really just verses one and two, and then I'll read uh, another verse about the theme of the letter. So go ahead. Yeah. So First Peter one in verses one and two, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Awesome. And then I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter shares his theme for the entire letter. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter writes, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So the first question that we're going to talk about just as we think about 1 Peter is how has considering Peter's intended audience and his intended theme for this letter, how has that deepened your appreciation or understanding of its messages? Yeah, well, going back to um, that, that the first few verses we read there in chapter 1, um, I think there are sort of three key words that identify this audience. They're elect exiles of the dispersion. And so, uh, w without getting too much into the details, this idea of like the dispersion, they're scattered around these different regions. They're sort of separated out, um, and it says that they're exiles. And 
I don't think this is really intended like literally like they're sojourners and they're just kind of like wandering through like Israel was through the wilderness. But it's the idea that they're outcasts. They're kind of um, on the fringe of society. They're uh, just rejected by um, the communities that they live in. And because of that, that brings on uh, a lot of um, persecution, maybe not physical yet. Um, that seems to come later. But it's a lot of, it's just rejection and things like that. Um, and, and you see words like slander and things like that as well. And so I think that kind of helps us frame uh, our perspective of this book, understanding that this, this audience, who he's writing to, they're spread out in these regions, they're rejected by their communities, and then it says um, they're elect or they're chosen. So they're these chosen exiles of the dispersion. What, what all that sort of says to me is that this book sort of stands as like a rallying cry. As they're spread out in these different regions and, and, and they're trying to understand the grace of God in the midst of suffering, this is kind of like a rallying point for, for all these people. And that rallying point is to stand firm in the true grace of God. And I don't know if you want to like take that and, and kind of expound on what, what Peter's talking about with that phrase. Yeah, I think you think about the people he was writing to, how they, I mean, they were scattered all around from, they were living in places that weren't their homeland and they were, you know, it seems like they were struggling. Peter talks a lot about suffering throughout this entire letter. In chapter one, he talks about the trials they're going through. that's testing mm-hmm. them like fire. Um, and he talks about suffering a lot in chapters three and chapter four Mm -hmm. and it seems like the whole letter he's really addressing what they're going through and how difficult their circumstances are and so you think about these people like you said you pointed out so so well how their circumstances are they're they're not they're not where they want to be they're not in communities they want to be they're kind of put out from the community and so peter writes them that this is the true grace of god Mm -hmm. and i think when we're suffering or going through difficulties especially we start to kind of question things about God. We start to maybe change things that, or change aspects of God into what we want him to be. Mm-hmm. And Peter's, he's encouraging them a lot, but he's also, I think, writing to help them not lose sight of what God's grace actually is about. And he, and that's why he says, I want you to stand firm. And I've been exhorting you. I've been testifying. I've been on, I'm on a witness stand that this is what God's grace really looks like. And so for these Christians that might've been you know, slipping or might have been losing sight of what it means to share God's grace with the world around them and their circumstances, Peter says this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to show God's grace to the world and to share God's grace with the world. Mm. And it's a really high standard that Peter holds these Christians to and holds us to by extension. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, you want to go ahead and jump into this first section in chapter one? Yeah, sounds good. Um, So there in chapter one, uh, he starts out in verse three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. So here he introduces this idea of of this identity that we have as children of God. And then he kind of goes on throughout the rest of the chapter to describe some of the blessings of being born again, of this new identity that we have. And so what what have been, as we've like studied through through this in the in the class, um, what have been some of these blessings that have stood out to you, and why do you find those important? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, like we talked about. And we talked in the class, we had the class list them all, and there is a bunch to be found in this section, a bunch of blessings that come from being born again into God's family. Um, 
the ones that stick out to me, I mean, of course, they're all all good. But I like, towards the end of the chapter, there's a few that kind of go together, I think, that I really like. Um, there is a new standard for our life, which he says, like, in verse um, 14, that we're not to be conformed to our former lusts. Um, and that kind of leads into the second blessing, that we're not to be conformed, we have a new standard, but we're also to be holy. And that there's an idea that we can now be holy. We have a new standard that we can actually attain to that was impossible for us before. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, like that leads right into the idea that God is our Father who is impartial with us. So all these things kind of flow together. I mean, those three ideas of this, this new family we have, we have a, fa- a, a perfect Father, mm-hmm. a Father who looks at us and is impartial with us. And I think that might hit a lot of us differently. Um, but the idea that God's going to look at us fairly, and he's going to deal with us fairly according to his just and righteous standards. And he's going to, he's leading us by example, hoping that we'll, you know, be holy like he's holy, that we won't conform ourselves to our former lifestyles. And I think sometimes Christians see that as a burden. Mm-hmm. But when Peter talks about it in this first chapter, he, he lists it as a blessing. This is an opportunity that you couldn't live to this lifestyle before, but now through God's grace and through the blessings of being born again, you have this new life you can live. And I think it's a really encouraging and empowering blessing that comes from being born again. Yeah. Well, also picking up with that idea of like God being this father and how because we're born again, we have him as this father. Um, I think that's an amazing idea. But then also uh, it's it's not just that we get to um, be like him, to be holy as he is holy, but at the start, he talks about this like imperishable inheritance. And he kind of hits on this idea, I think, in a couple places in this section. Like he talks about this living hope. Um, and then he, in, he quotes um, Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains or endures forever. Um, this is the, the first place that I've lived where there's really been any kind of season and so um, this is, I guess, today is the first day of fall. Mm-hmm. So right now it's like everything is, is going to start to change. And like by the time that winter hits, it's all going to die. It's all going to fade away. And Peter's quoting Isaiah and, and he's saying that's not just how like seasons are, but that's how the whole world is. And that's how people are. Everything around us is fading. And the only thing that remains through that is the word of the Lord, the promises that, that he has in store for us, this imperishable inheritance. And that just, that is so inspiring, especially thinking about where this audience is coming from, like this time of, of suffering and persecution um, where they're all scattered and it's it's hard and it's difficult. And the, and the, the one thing that's going to get you through that is remembering that you are sojourners, that you have an imperishable inheritance that your father is, is leading you toward. So that, I, I think, is just such an inspiring blessing to think about um, with that idea of God being our, our Father. Yeah, Peter really sets a tone for what he's trying to do in all of this letter, which is help these people and help us see the spiritual when the physical is really harassing us. You know, when, when, the, when our physical circumstances are challenging us to not see anything past what's going on, Peter kind of pushes God and his blessings to the fore and says, no, this is what you need to remember. This is what you need to focus on, and it'll get you through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's that's really good. We re- I really enjoyed discussing chapter one and all those blessings yeah. in the class. It was, yeah. That was a good discussion. So if you move on, as we move on to chapter two, you know, verses four through ten, 
Peter shares a lot of pictures. Like he shares a lot of pictures of what the church is and what we are um, as the church. You know, you look at 1 Peter 2, 4, it says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes through all these prophecies, all these Old Testament pictures of um, this idea of the cornerstone. And then he goes in verses 9 and 10, he just kind of lists off, and a lot of them are references to the Old Testament, you know, being a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, um, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of these are allusions mm-hmm. and references to the Old Testament, but they're all pictures. And they're all pictures of what the Christian is, and especially what the Christian is as a part of the church. And so, just as we think about this section, which pictures of the church and its mission from this section, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, which of them left an impression on you? And what was challenging about them, and what was encouraging about them? I think there are sort of two that stand out more than the the others. Um, The first is the idea of being a living stone. Um, and Peter seems to really like this idea of like putting living before something like the living hope, the living stone. But and I think that implies a lot of things. Um, when we think of living, we think of something that's like enduring and everlasting. But then also, if something is living, and I think someone brought this out in the class, and it like immediately triggered in my mind. I thought it was a great comment. But the idea, something that is living, is growing. Yeah. And so if if we're supposed to be these living stones that are stacked on top of one another and build up this spiritual house for God, then that means if I'm not growing as an individual and I'm not building up myself in, in this word, then I, I'm, I'm holding back this spiritual house. I'm holding back the, the, the people at Lost River. I'm holding back the growth of the kingdom. And uh, you see other images like that. Um, it, Paul seems to like to use the idea of like a, the body you know, if one part of the body isn't doing its job, the rest of it doesn't function as well. I think that's that same idea idea here. Like if, if I'm not being this living stone that is growing, then um, I, I'm not contributing to the building up of this body where we can stack on top of one another and be interconnected and build up the spiritual house to be what, what God wants it to be in, in all its fullness and all its glory. And I guess in addition to that, um, it's, it's sort of like he builds this structure of the house with this image, and then he talks about what's going on inside of it, being um, a, a holy priesthood. And there are so many interesting parallels about this idea of a priesthood, but I think on one hand, you know, one of the biggest roles that they had was uh, being a sacrifice and living as the holy people, they were, you know, they were the bridge between God and the people. And if that doesn't define our role as Christians, I don't know what does. We are this bridge. And, um, and so through our lives, living as, as these living sacrifices in everything that we do, we represent who God is in every way. And, and um, he even talks about uh, that idea of, of proclaiming the excellencies of God. Um, how am I doing that? That's been a really hard, introspective, thought-provoking question for me. How am I proclaiming the excellencies of God in the same way that this royal priesthood was supposed to do? So that those two images, the idea of the living stone and then this, this royal priesthood has 
really um, stood out to me and has been challenging, but also really encouraging. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the idea that the temple, like the Living Stones are coming together to build this temple, right? Yeah. Um, reminds me of this of when Solomon dedicated the temple that he built, the, the mm-hmm. beautiful, amazing temple that Solomon built. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41, Solomon writes in his prayer to God as he's dedicating the temple, he says, Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Mm. So you think about even, like, to your point, like the structure of the, of, the, of the temple, the structure of the ter- church, the structure of this building that we're building together, that's what proclaims God's excellencies. Yeah. Like the foreigners come to the temple because the temple was amazing, because God's people were amazing, the priests were amazing, and they were amazing because they were living a life for God. And they're doing it together. And there's something about the collective, and especially as Peter says, because we're not only the priests, we're also the temple. We're everything. You know, and we build it together to, to make that picture. Um, and to your point, like, I just, I love the last one he uses. And it's also, it's, it's reference to Hosea. Um, in verse in First Peter 2.10, he says, You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's beautiful because in Hosea, you know, Hosea is living out this this life that shows how God feels towards Israel. And Hosea, Hosea has these children with his wife, um, who's also a prostitute. And she's, you know, having these having kids that Hosea doesn't seem to be sure if they're his kids or not, you know? And it's like he names the first one, not my people. And it's like maybe this one wasn't his kid. And, and then another one, not receive mercy. And they're prophecies about Israel. And then God later in Hosea chapter 2 says, but one day they will receive mercy, and one day they will be my people. And God's been looking forward to this time when he could bring his people back. When he could, instead of being not his people, we could be called his people. And instead of being a people who hadn't received mercy, we'd be a people who have received mercy. And the fact that, I think it's not accidental that Peter ends with that one, because it's like this really big climactic conclusion where it's like, look, like God's been building towards this for thousands of years. And he's writing to some Jewish Christians probably who were spread out, exiles, not thinking very highly of themselves. He says, no, like now you have received mercy. Now you are the people of God again, like, like God talked about in Hosea. And it's this beautiful picture and it's challenging because, you know, we have to proclaim his excellencies. We have to live a life that glorifies God. But it's encouraging because it's the plan that God had always had. That we're living that, that we get to be beneficiaries of these amazing prophecies and these amazing gifts that God had planned for the world. And now we are living in those. So it's awesome. Mm, yeah, that, that is awesome. And, and you see that consistency throughout the book of things like this is according to the foreknowledge of God. It's showing constantly that it's all part of the plan. It's all part of God's purpose from the very beginning. And, and, and I, I love how empowering that idea is as well. Like um, when he talks about this royal priesthood, you know, he, he's quoting there from Exodus when they're at Mount Sinai and he's saying this is the reason why I saved you and maybe this gets a little bit uh, ahead of of where this is all all going and and talking about this theme of what the true grace of God really is but it's showing that he he saved you not just to bring you into this promised land but so that you represent who he is to the rest of the world that's why I brought you out of Egypt that's why I brought you through the Red Sea so that you could be this amazing spiritual house and so that you could show not just that you've received mercy, but that through you, 
through what God is doing for you, the rest of the people around you, the nations, the world will receive that mercy. And that's, that's just a, that's just like you said, an, an, an amazing thought. Um, we can't get too bogged down into that section though, because, because then we, we won't have time to get through the, the rest of it. But, um, getting into verses 11 and 12, this seems to be a, a key transition point in the letter. It kind of bridges what came before it with what comes after it. And so I'll, I'll just read it real quick. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passage of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, so we, we've kind of hit all around this on the dartboard, but getting specifically into this, this, uh, this question, what does this part reveal about Peter's concept of evangelism and how do you think that's helpful for us today? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think you're, you're right on. This is in some ways, I think the center of the entire letter and really to me, the more I've, I've read this letter and thought about it. It reveals one of Peter's true intentions in writing this letter. Um, he kind of, his point comes through clearly when he says, you know, I'm urging you, like, this is what I really want for you to do. This is what I'm really wanting you to do. And he's urging us to have a different behavior. And he's not just wanting us to be holy because he wants us to be different. You know, I just want you to be like God. I just want you to be better than other people. Like, sometimes we, we look at holiness or the world looks at holiness or we kind of get confused about why Christians ought to be holy. And Peter's like, no, I want you to change your attitude and change your, you know, your whole demeanor and your behavior because there are people watching you. Like you're living a life among the world and these Gentiles around you, they're going to slander you. I know they are slandering you, but I want them to have only have baseless accusations against yeah. you. So that when they try to figure out why they're, they're upset with you or what they can say bad about you, they have no grounds for it. And he wanted to prove the world wrong through the Christian attitude. And so often we try, and he's going to talk about some things like this in the next section, but so often we try to prove the world wrong with our argumentation or by being, you know, popular or being, you know, like by proving them like our goodness and our mm -hmm. strengths. But Peter says, no, like the way to show the world God's glory, to really proclaim his excellency and to, to shine your light as a Christian is to behave differently yeah. and to behave in other people's best interest. And so I think a lot of times like, He's, he's revealing how evangelism works. And a lot of times we think, well, I have to know all the right things or I have to, you know, be able to study the Bible. Some I have to go door to door. I have to do, you know, like we have all these ideas about what evangelism ought to look like. But Peter kind of sidesteps all that and says, no, like if you want to be evangelistic and you want to show the Gentile world around you, it just means the unbelievers around you, how good God is, how excellent he is, then demonstrate it in your behavior. Mm -hmm. It's like the fruit of the spirit. It's like so many other sections of the Bible that say this very same thing. But I think he ties it to evangelism, and, and sometimes we forget that the reason we ought to change is so that the world can see God through us, so we can make God visible. And I think that's a really helpful idea because anybody can do that. You know, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be, you know, the most well-studied person in the Bible either. I mean, you should study your Bible. But, like, you don't have to know every answer to, to, to show the glory of God in your behavior, to show the world that you're, you've changed from the, world, the worldly person you were before. And so I think that's really empowering and really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's so true. And, and I love that he, he returns to this image uh, of the sojourner in the exile. And it, it's almost like he kind of, he kind of seems to be saying like the, the way in which 
you impact the world around you is to act like in every way that you don't belong there, that your home is somewhere else. And so that means that if, if, my, if I'm a sojourner and I know that I'm headed toward a, a, a home, a destination that's far greater than this world, then I'm not going to live caught up in the former passions of my lust. And I'm going to live as, as someone who does good for the people around me so that I can point them toward that home and I can bring them on this journey. And so I, I love that he returns to this idea of, of the sojourner um, to talk about and to emphasize this idea of what evangelism really looks like. Like you said, it's not always uh, just going door to door, um, but living out the, that Christ-like example every step of the way. And through that, people see your good works and glorify the, the God, or glorify our God on the day of visitation. So I think, I think that's incredible. Yeah, we're just here on a green card. We can't forget that. Yeah, yeah. It's a good um, way to put it. Yeah, so this, this like, like you said, this transition, it feeds right into the next section. Um, and this next section, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through 1 Peter 3, 7, is a section about submission. And so it's definitely a section that a lot of us don't like to talk about, don't like to think about. It, it challenges us in ways where we think a lot of times we'll just kind of put it off and be like, oh, well, I don't want to think about all that stuff. But it's a direct uh, link to the section we just talked about. It's a direct link to the idea of how we can keep our behavior excellent. Like Peter's like, all right, I want you to keep your behavior excellent, so be submissive. And that's another thing. Like when we think about having an excellent behavior, submission isn't the first, you know, attitude or, or characteristic we go to. But that's the first place Peter goes to, and he sits there for a long time and says, this is how you have an excellent behavior. You humble yourself to the point of submitting to the world around you. And he talks about submission to government. Submission for slaves to slave masters, which is unbelievable, and submission of spouses, wives and husbands both, to their to their spouses, believing or unbelieving. And so, like this is like a heavy section, right? And it's a, it was it's led to a lot of good discussion in the class. Like a lot of you know, we were able to talk about like what ideas about submission do you have? What negative connotations might we have? And I think there's a lot of good discussion, a lot of good introspection to think about with these with this uh, part of First Peter. But I wanted to ask you and, and think about, um, as you thought about it, as you've been in the class and reflecting on this, just what are some principles or applications that we can make from the sections about submission in this section of First Peter, in First Peter 2, 13 through 3, 7? Yeah, well, there are a few verses that really kind of pop off the page for me. One is chapter 2 and verse 16, where it says, Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or um, slaves of God. And so this this cuts against the grain of like every American inclination. It's like, I'm free, so I'm going to live however I want. Mm-hmm. Um, that And, and it's, it's like true freedom in, in the mind of the world is just that. Like I have the freedom to live however I see fit. And whatever desire, whatever impulse comes to my mind, whatever appetite of, of my heart, um, you know, that that I want, I'm going to go and I'm gonna, I'm going to get that, uh, regardless of who stands in my way, regardless of what anybody says, or maybe particularly what the government says, you know, I'm going to go against that. And so, this this cuts so clearly against that sort of like classic like American identity and it gets to our hearts because of that I think but he he says okay in, in contrast to that 
yes, you're free, but don't use your freedom for your own sake. Use your freedom to, to serve God. And, and that's where true freedom is found. It's not just to live how you see fit, but the, the, the ability to control your desire and to direct that desire toward loving and serving other people and, and toward glorifying God. Yeah. And so that's one particularly that stands out to me, maybe just because it, it kind of, uh, well, as Peter, uh, or as it talks about in Acts 2, after Peter preached, kind of pierces my own heart yeah. <laughs> um, from, from Acts 2, it really, really gets to me. Because I think I'd probably need to be doing a much better job of that. Um, but then I also like verse 25. He says, For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Um, I think this helps me kind of understand what submission is all about. Um, without a shepherd, without a leader, we're clueless. We're lost. And when we try to follow the impulses and desires of our own hearts, we're going to fly off the cliff. We have to have someone, we have to have a leader, a shepherd to guide us. And in all this verse I think is saying is that living as a sojourner in, in an exile, I'm entrusting my will and my life to the good shepherd, the great shepherd. And sometimes that might mean I'm going through green pastures and it's great. And other times, maybe like the kind of times that the the recipients of this letter are going through, it's going to be dark valleys and it's going to be hard times and there's going to be suffering. But I've entrusted my will. I've denied myself and submitted myself to the shepherd and overseer of, overseer of my soul so that no matter what goes on in the world around me, whether it's with uh, the government or a, a master-slave relationship or a husband-wife relationship, whatever it might be, I am first and foremost subjected to God, and I trust that He's leading me gently home. Um, and so those are two that, that really stand out to me. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'll be quick, but there's three things. I mean, I was just as you're talking, there's so many things in this section. This is one of my favorite sections of First Peter because I think it is... It really flips our understanding of bad circumstances and empowers us. I'm mean, using that word too much, but it does empower people who who probably felt like they couldn't do anything in the situation they were in to actually mm-hmm. do a lot. Um, like you said, the first section is about submitting to government. That's where I want to start because I think so often, you know, we are uh, what five, six weeks out from an election, and it's a big, divisive election. Yeah. Nonetheless, I mean, all of them are big and divisive, I guess. But it seems like every four years it gets exponentially more so, mm-hmm. more polarized and more just emotionally challenging, a lot of turmoil. And there's going to there's gonna be a decision made that I guarantee you, even in our churches, is going to cause a split of opinion. Mm-hmm. And how do we respond to a government that we don't necessarily always agree with? You know, how do we respond to a leader who we may not, we may be difficult for us to respect? And how do we respond to local government and local authorities who enforce the law? Do we respect that? Do we submit ourselves? Or are we always trying to fight and rebel and say, like, well, I don't have to. You know, I'm not going to respect this leader. This guy isn't my president. This person isn't mine. You know, like, is that our attitude? And so that's the first thing I think it really just seems applicable. We have to talk about that. But secondly, there's a verse from the, the slave, slave master section that I think is really important because it has our key word of grace in it. In 1 Peter 2, verse 19, it says, um, after talking about how, you know, you have to submit, these slave masters, these slaves ought to submit to slave masters even if they're unreasonable. It says, for this finds favor in the New American Standard. But the word there is actually the word grace. 
it finds grace with God if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor or grace with God. And I think there's something that's so beautiful about that. Like I said, like, we don't like the idea of suffering unjustly, especially, you know, America is like built on this revolution about, you know, we didn't, we're not going to be taxed without representation. So we revolted. And that's in our DNA a little bit. But there's this beautiful concept where it's like, if you are suffering unjustly, but you do that with grace and you show grace, it's going to be a grace to God. And God's going to look down on each one of us and say, wow, that's my child. Like he looked down on Job and bragged to Satan about Job. He'll do that with each of us if we bear up under even on injustice and we bear up and we say, you know what, like I'm going to be gracious and submissive to the world around me. I'm going to show them God's grace through that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, instead of feeling powerless, it, it empowers the Christian to be like, you know what, I have a choice to make. I'm going to choose to be humble, submissive, and gracious. And I'm going to show the world how good my God is through that. Yeah. And then thirdly, uh, this is really quick, but when he talks about the husband-wife relationship, he talks about Sarah and how she submitted to Abraham calling him Lord. And the only time we see Sarah calling Abraham Lord, I think it's in Genesis 18 and verse 12, and she doesn't even say it out loud. Mm -hmm. She's thinking it in her head. And that's such an interesting reference. Like if Peter's referencing that verse, seems like he is, then he's referencing Sarah calling Abraham Lord in her mind and in her heart. And that's like what submission gets to. Submission gets to the idea that it's not just doing the right things or acting the right way, but true submission and true grace of God has to be a whole heart, wholehearted endeavor. Mm. And I think that is it's so challenging. Yeah. But if the Christian, if each of us can get this, then we can really show the world around us God's grace. Which leads us to the second part of this question, because the middle of the section is about Christ's example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll let you cover this question by yourself, because I think it, you know, it's, it's, it's a good one. But I want, you, I want to hear what you think about this. How does Christ's example the foundation for these ideas? And how does it encourage people who, find themselves, who, might, who might find themselves in these situations? Mm. Well, I think, I mean... Christ in every way exemplified this. Um, on one hand, he, like Philippians 2 talks about, he's the one who had all preeminence and all power and all glory, and he gave all of it up to come to this earth, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And not just obedient when he felt like it, or obedient when it was convenient for him, or when he agreed with the rulers, but obedient to the point of death. When people are reviling him and spitting upon him, he doesn't return that. Um, I mean, how, how quick are we to, to, to lash out when even the littlest uh, you know, arrow is thrown our way? Jesus, he doesn't revile in return. There's not deceit found in his mouth, but he humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And in that, you know, Philippians 2 goes on to say, therefore, God is highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. But in that example, um, he he shows us exactly what it means to to uh, to submit our will to the people around us. And when he was raised up, he drew all men to himself. And I think that's kind of the idea of this section. When we submit our lives, that we draw all men not to ourselves, but we resemble Christ so closely in our lives that they can't help but. Uh, but but see Christ in us and see a difference of character and um, 
be won over without even a word. Yeah. Um, that's how Peter describes wives winning over unbelieving husbands. But isn't that just such a clear principle f- for us that um, that the way in which we win over the people around us is that we so closely model the image of Christ that they're won over um, just by seeing our submissive example yeah. of self-denial and sacrifice. Yeah, and Christ's example being the, being the center of this, it's like so many people, slaves in that time, or you know, wives in bad situations, or whatever the case may be, could have, could have said, Peter, this is too much you're asking of mm-hmm. me. You know? And it is a lot to ask of all of us, and especially maybe of people then, even more than us. But Peter puts Jesus in the middle of the session saying, Jesus chose this willingly. And that's really the case with all the submission stuff. Sometimes we feel like submission is a burden, and Peter exalts submission as a choice. Submission is a grace. It's a gift. Yeah. Submission is a grace, is a, a gift that we can give if we want to. And so really I think that totally changes that. And Christ's example totally changes it. Submission so often to us is like, well, I have to do this. It's a drudgery. You know, like yeah. I have to be submissive. But with Jesus being the middle of the section, not only does it lead by example and encourage those who are in difficult, you know, dire straits, but it also shows us that submission is a choice we can make. It's a gift we can give to the world around us that will possibly change the world yeah. for the better. Mm. If, and that's how God can use us to change the world. And yeah. I think that's such a yeah. beautiful idea. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Um, well, I guess one, one final thought for tonight as we, we wrap up. We've probably gone a little bit over the time, but um, the, the, the last thought, um, just sort of going back to the beginning and, and looking at just the overall scope of this letter and what Peter's trying to accomplish, um, I guess so far in this, in this study, how has Peter helped you to stand firm in the grace of God? And maybe how has it changed your understanding of what the grace of God really is? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Peter, like, I think I love the idea that he says stand firm in it because that's like, that's what's difficult, like perseverance and, and endurance and, and sticking with it is one of the most difficult things about trying to follow in Christ's footsteps, right? Like taking up our cross and following after him every day is, mm-hmm. it's a heavy burden sometimes it feels like. Um, but Peter shows us in the little ways how we can do that. And first of all, he starts off with a super encouraging section of chapter one, where it's just like encouraging, encouraging, encouraging. Think about this, think about this, think about this, like think about things this way. And he's like trying to shift our perspective and if we can get that right first, then he says, and this is the attitude you need to have. And so he, he kind of does two things, even in the beginning of this letter, that are helpful to me to stand firm, which is like, hey, like, change your mindset. Work on that. Like, work on the way things you're looking at and the way you're looking at them. And then secondly, let that affect my attitude. Mm-hmm. And as I do that, like, I can show God's grace. And I think that's what's really changed my idea about God's grace. So often I think about God's grace just in terms of him saving me. Well, God's so gracious that he saved me, and he did. And I'm so thankful that he did and saved all of us. But God's grace is more than that. And God's grace is actually something that is in my life to the point where I have an opportunity to share it with the people around me. You know, it's like when a kid gets a gift on his birthday and... Or, or, or her birthday, and they're like, you know, all their friends want to play with it too, and they share it, you know? Yeah. They don't have to. They can be selfish. They can hoard it, but they share it, and they enjoy the gift with their friends, and they enjoy the gift with more people. And, and our salvation, our relationship with God is a gift that God gives us that sometimes we are guilty of hoarding. Yeah. We think, well, I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. I'm so glad that I know God. I'm so glad. But then we don't ever 
let it change us to the point where we share it with others. So yeah. I think one of the things that this changes or challenges me, God's the, Peter challenges me to see God's grace as something that I need to be thinking in terms of how can I show and share God's grace mm. to everybody. Yeah, I, I think that that's how that's how it's really helped me too. I I think it's so much deeper and wider uh, than something that just sort of we sit in and it just washes over us. Um, it's something he says that we stand in. It's something that's active. It's something that we participate in and share with with the the world uh, around us. And, and so um, I, I think maybe just a, a way that, and I think, I don't know if it was you or Chad or someone in the class who, who brought this up, but a way that has helped me remember it is it's not just about salvation, but it's also about sanctification. That this grace is not just... Um, something that uh, is is providing me eternal life and this imperishable inheritance that we're we're headed toward, but that it's changing me right now in the moment. It's sanctifying me. It's making me more and more like God every time that that I I look into it and try to understand it more. Um, it's changing me, and if it's changing me, then it ought also to be changing the world around me. And so. Um, it's just such such a such a, a powerful and transformative letter um, that that teaches us how to stand firm in the true grace of God. Um, so I guess that's that's where we're at in the study so far in the college class. Um, we're really glad that that you joined us tonight. Um, uh, there should be some videos coming after this of different uh, college students who are in the class who um, have some thoughts to share about how the, the class has gone, what they've learned, what has challenged them, and hopefully that will, um, I don't know, excite you to get back into class and to studying um, with the brothers and sisters here at Lost River uh, when those start up again. Um, so anyway, we're, we're thankful that you joined tonight. We hope that this uh, study was encouraging to you. It was a lot of fun and encouraging for me and Ben um, getting into it. And uh, we hope it helps you understand and stand firm in the true grace of God. Um, yeah. Anything else to add? You want to close this out in in prayer? Yeah. And one second. I, I think um, one final thing. This is our last video before classes start. So we're starting up classes this next week. And one of the reasons Jared and I are excited to do this is because we wanted to share how exciting it has been for us to be back in Bible class. And that sounds kind of nerdy, I guess. But you know, it's just something that we've been enjoying so much, and it's been so refreshing. So encouraging, um, just renewing just to be back with our family and back into God's Word and hearing other people help us. It's been such a grace and a gift to us. And so we wanted to maybe rev you up to be excited about the Bible classes that are starting again. Um, and we hope that you'll all participate in those if you're able. Um, so that's why we uh, kind of broke from form a little bit in this video and shared what we've been doing in Bible class because we hope that it would encourage you as well. So yeah, let's pray, and then we'll be done. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, you are wonderful and good. You are holy and just. You are impartial as a father towards us. And Father, in your holiness, we see an example and an opportunity for us to be holy, and we are humbled by that. We're humbled by the blessings that you've given us by uh, causing us to be born again through your word. We're humbled that you have allowed us to walk in your footsteps and to serve your goals and your purposes in this world. We're humbled that we are your people. And Lord, we pray that as we dwell on you and your characteristics, especially your grace and your holiness and your goodness, 
that we would reflect those in our behavior to the world around us. We pray, Father, as we think about First Peter and standing firm in, in your true grace, we pray, Father, that you would help us with that, um, that we would be so excited about what you've given us that we couldn't help but share that excitement and share that gift with everyone we meet. Lord, I'm so thankful for Jarrett. I'm so thankful for the class we've been having, for Chad and, and his teaching and all the, the students have been coming. I'm so thankful for the church here at Lost River. I'm so thankful, Lord, that we get to get back to more Bible classes and be together more. And Father, I'm just looking forward to more and more times like this and looking forward ultimately to heaven where it'll be like this all the time. And Father, I pray that um, we would just look for opportunities to, to encourage each other, to serve each other, and to, to share your grace with the world around us. Lord, please be with us and carry us through the rest of today. And all these things we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.